Well, I'm still unpacking. I'll be unpacking probably for the next month. However, at the parsonage, I'm about three-quarters of the way through all of the boxes with books and other stuff in it. The other day, I was sorting through several boxes, opening them to see what was in them, identifying what was there, and then promptly storing them in a closet. You know how you do. When you move, you take a box that's been filled for years, you look in it, you then take it, you move it to the next place, you look in it again, and then you put it away. You don't see it again until you move again. You know how that goes. Usually half that stuff you want to get rid of, but not this box. This box had old family photos. It had old family Bibles, including the Bibles of my grandparents and my great-grandparents and one Bible of a great-great-grandparent. It was this box that I spent a long time with the other day because in it I found the Bible of my mother's mother's mother. We called her Mother Lona, my great-grandmother on my mother's side. She lived in Ben Franklin, Texas, just north of here. And so I got really interested, and I pulled out the Bible, and I looked at it, and it's worn out. It was given to her when she was a young girl, and she used it her whole life. So the leather binding was crusty and falling apart, and the interior of the Bible was falling out of it. It's an old authorized edition. And so I looked at it, and I opened it up, and noticed that nearly every single page Old Testament and New Testament, nearly every single page of this Bible had notations in it. Her markings, her underlinings, her exclamation points, her circling words, identifying things that were important to her. And then many of the pages had interleafed with them notes, cards, photographs, little clips of hair, all sorts of fascinating stuff. Preparing for the sermon this week, I decided to see what she had to say or how she marked Romans 8. And so I flipped through to Romans 8, and I noticed how she had marked and underlined almost the entire chapter, and especially verses 31 and following, and most especially the second half of verse 31. My great-grandmother, Mother Lona, Lona Miller, she outlined in dark red box the following words if God be for us who can be against us that just sent a thrill down my soul when I read that that sent a thrill through my body and I realized yes indeed if God is for us who can be against us or more properly translated if God is for us who cares who's against us we have God on our side. We have God at our backs. We have God in support of us. God is for you. Oh, that can't possibly be the case. I'm a sinner. God is for you. Well, that can't possibly be the case. I'm, I don't do what I'm supposed to do. I don't go to church enough. I don't read the Bible enough. I don't pray enough. I don't give enough. God is for you. If God is for you, who cares who's against you? Can I get an amen? amen. I wasn't half bad, actually. <laughs> he who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, 
Will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. After all, God gave his Son. God the Father gave his Son, Jesus the Christ. God gave us Christ Jesus our Lord to stand in for us, to be for us an intercessor. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? That's you. It's God who justifies. And that word justifies and justification, that's a big, jaw-crunching theological word. What does it mean? best illustration I can come up with is when we're using a word processor or a typewriter. You have justified margins. If you want your margin to be on the left side, where all the words and the beginning of every word lines up on the left side, you can click a little button that says left margin justification. Meanwhile, on the right side, all the end of each line is jagged. It doesn't end at the exact same spot on the page, and some are a little longer than others. If a word is a little too long, it plops it to the next line, and it makes a jagged right margin. Or you can click on right justification, and all the words, the end of the lines, will all line up with the one above and the one beneath, making a nice straight line, while the left side becomes jagged and uneven as the words are a different length and different size. Or you can click on center justification so that you get them laid out from the center. Centering was difficult when you used an old manual typewriter. You had to count up the number of words in the line, the letters in the line, and you had to divide by two, and then backspace, backspace, backspace. Remember doing that? Computers are making it so easy. Just click one button, it's done. Left justification, right justification, or nowadays you can even do, you know, both justifications so that the left and the right side are justified nice and neat, and the words on the inside sometimes are stretched out a little bit, making them look kind of weird to make up space between the end and the beginning. Fascinating. Well, guess what? That's what justification means also with us relative to God. There's a rule at the top of the page on your screen that shows where the justification lines are supposed to be. Likewise, in your life, there's a rule, and it's made up of God's will for you. And in Jesus Christ, our lives are justified to that rule or to that line so that we line up with God's will for us, or at least we're supposed to line up with God's will for us. More likely, we're like children. In fact, we are children, eternally so. And like children, they'll come and they'll have a piece of paper and they've just written all over it. To them, it's a work of art, and it is to the parents as well. And so the parents take that work of art, as y'all know, and you put that work of art on the refrigerator. Well, guess what? Our lives are like that work of art that a child does. And God looks at it and it's all over the place. Coloring outside the lines, words that go over the justified margins, ignoring all of that, but it looks beautiful and so God takes it and puts it on his refrigerator too. Well, in Jesus, it's as if God views us as if all that scribbling is justified. All that scribbling beyond the lines is centered and justified left and right. Well, here also, Jesus came. Jesus was sent by God to line us up with God's will for us. And over time, 
as God keeps clicking on that justified margins button in our lives, slowly but surely, if we pay attention to God, if we use the means of grace, if we respond to God's word, if we pray, if we serve, if we give, if we participate in all the means of grace, slowly but surely, we discover the margins of our lives begin to line up with God's will for us. And it's Jesus who does this. Well, if Jesus has done this for us, who can possibly challenge us and say, the lines of your life, Mark, are not justified. You've written over the line. Naughty, naughty, naughty. Well, guess what? Jesus has already justified him. So the person who's saying naughty, naughty, naughty can go jump in the lake, right? Hmm. Who is to condemn, in other words? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who is, at, who is raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who indeed intercedes for us. Dad, I paid for that, Jesus says. When I write over the lines and the margins, when I write over the lines and the margins of my life, Jesus says to God, Dad, I paid for that. Well, he wrecked the car. Dad, I paid for that. He stole a candy bar from the 7-Eleven. Dad, I paid for that. He rejected his sister or his brother. Dad, I paid for that. He screwed up the environment. Dad, I paid for that. He's with his brothers and sisters and his friends. Dad, I paid for that. He ignores the hungry and the homeless and the needy. Dad, I paid for that. Jesus makes intercession for us. Jesus comes to make intercession for us because of what he has done for us in dying for us, in living for us, in being raised for us. In coming to be one of us, he paid for all that, for everything that we call sin. Why? Because God loves us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? I mean, sometimes we think that the things we do or who we are will separate us from the love of Christ. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness? Some people will say nakedness will do it, no? <laughs> or nakedness or peril or sword, a fundamental message of the Christian faith is that God's love is unconditional, unrestricted, unending, and it goes to absolutely everybody, from Mother Teresa on the good end to Adolf Hitler and Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden on the naughty end, and everybody in between. God so loved the world. 
There's nothing you can do. Not a thing you can do to make God not love you. There's a pretty horrible theology in the world that says that some bad things, persecution, distress, famine, nakedness, peril, war, sword, damage, death, illness, all of this stuff happens to you because you've been bad, because you've drawn outside the lines, because you've done things you're not supposed to do. God is mad at you, and therefore all these bad, naughty things happen to you. It's called Deuteronomic theology. The good things happen to the good people, and bad things happen to the bad people. Nonsense, or as my grandmother Lona used to say, and she wrote this out in the margin of her Bible, poppycock. <laughs> I looked up poppycock to find out what it meant, because that's a strange one. It means nonsense, rubbish, claptrap, balderdash, blather, garbage. It means rot, tripe, jive, hogwash, baloney, drivel, Bunk, piffle, I love this one, fooey, twaddle, malarkey, gobbledygook. It means mumbo-jumbo, bunkum, hokum, tommy rot, and even crapola and verbal diarrhea. <laughs> According to Webster, that's what it means. Poppycock's a fabulous word. The idea that God stops loving you because you do things you should not be doing is a bunch of poppycock. Nonsense. Claptrap. Balderdash. Verbal diarrhea. That's, kinda, that's a fabulous visual illustration, isn't it? Because that's what it is. As it is written. And here's why it's a bunch of nonsense. As it is written. And he's quoting from the Psalms here. As it is written, for your sake you are being killed all day long. We are as counted as sheep to be slaughtered because of God's love. And because we love God and identify ourselves with God, because even though we fail, even though we don't live the life we're supposed to live, even though we stumble and fall, even though we draw outside the lines and don't line up with the rule that God has for us, even when we mess up and even though we mess up, nevertheless, God still loves us. And because God still loves us, sometimes awful things happen. There are Christians today who are being murdered in Iraq and Afghanistan because they refuse to convert, to deny Christ, recount their faith, recant their faith, rather, and convert to Islam. Flipping through Facebook the other day, I came across a horrible picture of the murder of Christians in Mosul who have refused to pack up and leave. So even though you follow Christ, even though you believe in God, even though you love God and you know God loves you, sometimes these bad things, hardships, that's tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, even sword, yes, these things happen. Even though God still loves us, they still happen. 
No. In all these things, in every one of these things, we are more than conquerors. That's a fabulous phrase. More than conquerors. Through Him who loved us. That was underlined under my great in my great-grandmother's Bible too. Again and again and again throughout her life. More than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded, as the King James says. Convinced in RSV is fine, but persuaded gives it more oomph. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels. The NRSV says rulers here. The actual word is principalities. And then it should follow immediately with the word powers. It got moved in the NRSV translation due to some of the textual differences in the history of the text. Really, principalities and powers, they go together. And it's speaking not just about the rulers of this world, but of powers and forces in the heavenly places, or more properly put, demonic places. For I am convinced, persuaded, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth. Things present? Sometimes we're afraid that what we're getting ready to face right now is going to kill us. No, and not even things to come. We spend half of our life worrying about tomorrow and being upset over what happened yesterday. Well, nothing that happens even today or tomorrow. Things present or things to come, nor height, nor depth. And in case you missed it, nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. And out in the margin, my great-grandmother, Mother Lona, wrote in all caps, Amen. Can I get an amen? amen? Nothing. Nothing we do will cause God to stop loving us. No failure on our part. No sin, no failing to hit the mark. No falling short of God's glory. Nothing we do will cause God to stop loving us. Well, you got to stop drinking and smoking and having sex. Then God will love you. Poppycock. Earlier in this letter, back in chapter 5, verse 8, Paul wrote... God proves, demonstrates His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were in, and it's continuous, while we were in the very act of committing harmartia, falling short of God's will for us, drawing outside the lines, the margins, Christ died for us. There's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that I can do that will cause God to stop loving us.
And we can turn our backs on God. We can say to God, no thank you God, I don't want to have anything to do with you, goodbye. And go away, kind of like the prodigal son did. Give me my inheritance, I want to go off to the far country. We can play the prodigal son and run away from God. But just as the father in the story did not stop loving his son, so also God, the eternal creator of the universe, does not stop loving us. When we go astray, when we draw outside the lines, when we run away from God's love for us, God does not run away from us. God continues to love us. There are a whole bunch of jerks up in Topeka, Kansas at Westboro Baptist Church that says that God hates people. God hates this group. God hates that group. They, they've been picketing the funerals of soldiers who've died in combat because God hates them and hates America. They say God hates any kind of group you can think of. Well, my friends, God does not hate them. Huh? Well, I don't like them very much, no, but good thing I'm not God. God doesn't hate them. I mean, God ought to strike them dead. Well, God ought to strike us dead too, friends, because we commit sin, harm our tea, draw outside the lines just as much as they do when they say God hates people. No. God loves you. And there's nothing you can do. Not a thing you can do in this life to cause God to stop loving you. Even running from God will not cause God to hate you. Well, doesn't that mean everybody gets to be saved? Oh, I wish that were the case. But because God loves you, because God loves you just like a parent loves the child, so also God has to let you go and let you commit your own mistakes and let you go your own way and trust that the love of the parent for the child will eventually bring that child back. A parent that loves the child will let that child go and even make the child's own mistakes to learn from them. God lets us make our mistakes, lets us go astray, lets us become the prodigal, praying that we will one day return home. Well, sometimes the danger of allowing the child to go astray is the child won't come back. God has that same risk with us. Because of love, God paid the price in Jesus Christ for us all. And all we have to do is say yes and receive the gift and live the life of faith that he would have us live. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who cares who's against us? We have the creator of the universe loving us, calling us, 
promising to transform us, to click on the justified margin button in our lives and line us up with His will. Only we will respond with faith. Accept the love of God. Embrace the love of God. Live in the love of God. And allow God to justify your margins that you might live by faith within them and in the love of God eternally. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In your presence, Lord, let me learn at your listening to a sermon by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of the First United Methodist Church in Commerce, Texas, and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2014 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information and for other sermons by Dr. Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at First United Methodist Church, 1709 Highway 24, Commerce, Texas, 75428. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.